Hey there, I'm Joanne Tambrakis, and this is Marketing, Mindfulness, and Martinis. Unfiltered conversations, or as I like to say, opinions shaken, not stirred, on what's changing and what's not in business and in life as we enter into the next normal. So pour yourself your beverage of choice, and let's get to it. My guest today is a global financial executive who has managed operations for Procter & Gamble, Tetra Pak, Beersdorf Nivea, as well as private equity firms. His executive positions include Vice President of Finance, Global Controller, and CFO. He has visited clients in over 190 countries, I'd love to see that map, and lived in nine of them in Europe, Asia, and Latin America. He has led over 26 mergers and acquisitions. He is also a student favorite, which is how I came to learn of him, who teaches finance for marketing decisions at NYU. He is also what I consider to be a subject matter expert in cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and NFTs, and all that stuff that people keep talking about, and the majority of us don't fully understand. Welcome to the podcast, George Benaroya. Oh, thank you so much, Joanne. I'm super happy to be here. I also have heard from my students how much they enjoy your class. So I'm delighted to be here. I know. It's it's really nice to meet you. Um, when I invited you on the show, I did ask if you could explain cryptos and NFTs um, as if I was a five-year-old. And I do want to get to that. <laughs> but first, I always like to start with asking my guests, where are you from? Great. So I was born in uh, Argentina in a small town in the West called Mendoza. We make wine there. And uh, as a kid, I, I wanted to uh, to go and, and study in the U.S. So I came as a high school student, first in Atlanta, finished high school, then did my undergrad, then did an MBA, and which I graduated from when I was 21. And then I went back to, to live in Europe and Latin America and Asia. And I just been back to the States about five years ago. Aha, uh-huh, aha. Uh-huh. So your reputation here precedes you. Finance for marketing, as far as I'm concerned, can be one of the most least interesting subjects, yet necessary courses for a marketer. But yet you get rave reviews. And from what I understand, it is your ability to explain this stuff in non-finance, what I call geek terms. So word has it you're also big on NFTs, which marketers seem to be embracing rather quickly. I think maybe a little too quickly, but we'll see whether you change my mind, and which I do want to get to. But let's start with cryptocurrencies. Uh, you know, one of the things that you asked before I started, we started is if I would use Bitcoin to send money or as an investment. And to both, I'd have to answer no, because I can't wrap my head around either of them. But maybe by the be- end of the show, I'll understand it better and have a different answer. So when we think of crypto, many people assume that it is synonymous with Bitcoin which I don't think is true, but can you explain that? Well, the advantage of Bitcoin is that it has a good brand, right? It's something that is easy for people to pronounce and and to remember, and it was um, the first one, so to speak. So in that sense, um, it's quite good. I think maybe something that is interesting is if we were to explain, or if I was to explain uh, Bitcoin, say, to my mom, right, what I would say to uh, you know oversimplified is that it's just lines of code that some people regard as money or an asset. 
And there are other um, cryptocurrencies which have you know, been developed and, and so on. And part of the reason is that although Bitcoin per se is a great idea, it has some shortcomings. It has some shortcomings. Okay. So when I think of Bitcoin, I think it's like monopoly money. I can't really wrap my head around it. So you kind of explained that, that it is a currency, but it's also pretty volatile, right? It, I mean, I, I think it was this week as we're recording this and this particular week, people may be listening to this later on, but um, I read in the Wall Street Journal that it dropped 54, 54% on Monday from its high in November. Yeah, that is correct. And that is one of the major drawbacks, right? So um, one of the things that we look at uh, in class and then it goes into the final, right? It's one of the questions is, how many times has Bitcoin dropped by more than 50% in the last 10 years? And now with what happened yesterday, the number is eight times. Eight times. So one was 99% and other times 53, 54, and, and so on. So it's very volatile. So it's it's not for the faint of heart, so to speak. It, it, is that because a lot of it's speculation on the next great thing? Is that is that what's causing this kind of volatility? Yeah, in general, uh, that is the main cause, right? That is mostly for, for speculations because unlike a company where you make money, um, this one is just driven by how people believe that it's, it's going to behave, right? And that, uh, you know, causes uh, part of this volatility. So, and and you can correct me if I say anything that's ridiculous here, but I do know a little bit, probably more than I'll let on to. Cryptocurrencies, if I understand them, are built on blockchain technology. And isn't that the real value in there? Yeah, in, in my opinion, there is value on the idea. And let me backtrack a okay. tiny bit and try to explain, uh, you know, the, the Bitcoin idea and, and so on. So when I read about Bitcoin five or six years ago, I thought it was a terrific idea, right? So the concept was that um, one person just with a computer and an internet connection was going to be able to send money to another person anywhere in the world with, with a computer, right? And I thought that, that was terrific because, you know, I don't like when we put restrictions to the movement of capital. So in some countries like Venezuela or Cuba or nowadays Argentina, there are restrictions, right? Now, one could argue, well, you know, there are some bad people out there and, and so on, but most people are honest people, right? So for 7 billion, and let's say that, you know, we have 30 million people that, you know, are corrupted or, or whatever, then let's not make it hard for the other 6.9 billion people, right, who, who have it, who deserve the chance to, to move capital. And so I really liked the idea of, of Bitcoin, right? The fact that you wouldn't have those restrictions. And in fact, I bought a tiny bit of Bitcoin just to test it uh, on Square about five years ago before going to Tokyo, where in Japan it was a lot more developed. Now, the tricky part is that when I got to Tokyo or to Japan, I wasn't able to spend it. And um, we can speak a bit more about that. So the idea or the concept of Bitcoin and of blockchain are terrific concepts. The problem is that when we're executing these great ideas, is not working out as we thought it will be. Aha, uh -huh. like many of these things that start. And how how is it not? Let's go, go to the, the Bitcoin point for uh, point first. How is that? How do you see that it's not working out? So the first uh, 
problem that we have or that we realize is that the whole idea was that you wouldn't need a financial intermediary, right? You will be able to send money to, uh, you know, directly to people. But in reality, it's quite complex to, for example, mint or to make Bitcoin, right? Um, because of, of the way it works and so on. And for years, people were trying to use it by themselves and they realized that it doesn't work, right? So then what happened was that wallets were created and wallets basically work like, like a bank account, right? So you transfer your Bitcoin to that wallet and then you're able to spend it or to transfer it to other people and so on. So what we learned uh, with this is that now you can you just can't have, you know, people, um, uh, you know, dealing with this indirectly. People who are super sophisticated and they have all the engineering training and so on, they may be able to do it. But for most of us, we do, we do need someone to help us out, right? And that is where the wallets um, came into, into uh, function and, and so on. I remember that when you... Um, reach out to me. I, I mentioned that I was in El Salvador, which has yes. made Bitcoin legal tender. And so I was testing this, right? If it's uh, that easy to use to make payments and, and so on. So the first thing that didn't work out was this idea of, uh, you know, that we will just have uh, two people sending money to each other without a third party. And the other thing which hasn't worked out well is the transaction fees, right? So when you read that, you know, you can send Bitcoin to, you know, another person for free and so on. So what I always do about anything is I test it myself and I go and I try to send money um, to other people and so on using the, the, the most well-known uh, wallets, places like Coinbase uh, here in the US and, and others in Europe. And there is a transaction fee. And the transaction fee is rather expensive for you know, many transactions, and it also takes uh, quite a bit of time. So one of the things, one of the problems that you will have the way Bitcoin is set up is that technically you will have to wait up to ten minutes, right? So imagine that you know you are at a store and you're trying to make a payment, and you say, "Oh, hold on, you know, we need to wait ten minutes for the transaction <laughs> to go through," right? That that's not going to work. Absolutely um, not. So the what? No, no, the, the wallets try to solve um, that problem, but uh, you still have a transaction cost, right? You have to pay all these people working in this network for the work they're doing. So um, in the tests that I have done to send both $300 or a million dollars, Bitcoin is much more expensive than the banking system. Interesting. I, I I, I just don't think that the general public is even aware of that. But then I think the general public doesn't really understand what this is. Yeah. And I think the problem is that, you know, you really have to get into the details. And let me share the first example, if I may, about the $300. So one of the things that I really believe is that people should have access to a bank account. And in the U.S., we make it quite easy. Uh, it's much more easy than in other countries. But imagine that, you know, you're an immigrant and you're not familiar with the system and you're worried, right? And let's say that you're working and you have saved $50,000, right? You work for three years and someone steals your money. That breaks my heart, right? Because yeah, you have been working as a maid. Uh, typically, I get on public buses to talk to people. And so the stories that I'm, I'm sharing are, are real stories, right? And so I would say, well, but why don't you go to a bank and, and deposit the money there and, and so on? And they're worried about what will happen if they go to a bank. 
Now, in the U.S., you don't have a problem because even if you're an illegal immigrant, you can still deposit your money at a bank, but people will be worried anyways. So the problem is that because of that, they, they could say, well, let's go and try to use Bitcoin. And the problem or the cost of using Bitcoin that sometimes people don't realize is that first, you need to buy Bitcoins. And when you buy Bitcoins, you pay somewhere, with two point, somewhere between 2.3% to 5%. And then let's say that this uh, lady, that sorry that I, I published, is called Maria, sends the $300 to her mom in El Salvador. Then her mom has to sell the Bitcoin to go buy groceries, right? Or has to use an ADM where she would have paid 5%. So we have 3%, plus 5%. And then the other thing that is also useful to know is the concept of spread. So when you buy currencies, right, when you buy dollars or euros or pounds, what I recommend to people to know whether they're being uh, charged a fair rate is you want to look at the difference between the buy rate and the sell rate. That's called the spread, right? And the spread in some cases can be as high as 10%. If you get the lowest rate, it can be 1%, right, in, in, with, uh, through companies like Coinbase. So once you add it all up, the total cost to send $300 for most people will be $30 or 10%. And compared to that, you know, if, he, if Maria was to give her mom one Vista David card from one of the big, uh, big and good banks that we have in the U.S., she would pay no transaction fees and she will get a full refund for any ATM fees charged by any ATM anywhere in the world. So her cost will be zero compared to $30. If she uses a MoneyGram or Western Union, which used to be very expensive, now they have lowered the rates. So her cost will be somewhere between zero and $11, which is still much less than $30. So in the case of small transactions like $300, Bitcoin is more expensive. Wow. Uh, and I'm going to mention this to people who are listening. I'm going to put that link in the show notes, but you wrote a great piece on explaining that, um, that I did read when I was doing my research. I'm, I still, I, you lost me someplace in between on that, but I think I've got it better now that I've heard you, heard you explain it. But it, it almost makes it sound like this is a scam. Well, I don't think that is a scam uh, because I think that the people behind they, they really believe in in, uh, in the concept. Um, and by the way, just so that uh, the folks listening have the, the full um, concept. So if you want to transfer a million dollars, the problem that you have is that the way that things are set up now for most of us, we have to break it into smaller pieces. They won't let us send a million dollars. So when you break it into smaller pieces, you pay fees on each one of them, and then the cost uh, will be much, much higher than if you just sent a wire. So um, either way, is um, is more expensive. Now, you could argue that it's not a scam because, you know, in theory at least, well, that is a, that is a reality. The, the fact is that no one really owns Bitcoin, right? It's all these people who are creating this blockchain and, and so on. So it's um, driven by expectations. But I think that, you know, if there was only one thing that I would recommend um, people or governments to do is to educate consumers 
um, if people want to buy Bitcoin and, and use it, I think they should be entitled to. I also think that um, businesses should let their, their customers or their consumers pay with Bitcoin if they want to, right? We, we need to give people a choice, but we need to educate them about the risks of using this. So, and again, you know, this is this stuff that continues to confuse me, but you're helping. But you're actually using whatever your own currency is, whether it's a dollar or a euro, to buy Bitcoin. So you're using one currency to buy another currency. Am I getting that right? That is exactly right. And so, uh, you know, what happens is that in reality, and I always like to emphasize this, these people uh, doing all this work, they want real money, right? I mean, yes, you pay them through Bitcoins, but you have to go and buy the Bitcoins to pay them. So either if your currency is the euro, the peso, whatever, you need real money to compensate. And they do get paid for the work they do. So um, it's real money that you have to deposit. Now, one could argue, well, no, because I already have Bitcoins, right? And there is um, some uh, you know, accounts that will have some Bitcoin, but most transactions are not done with Bitcoin, right? You have to go on and buy uh, the Bitcoin or, or other cryptocurrencies with, with your own money, with your own real money. <laughs> real money as opposed to, I guess, we don't use that word fake here. But if it's not, <laughs> if it's not regulated, how do I know it's secure? Well, one of the advantages that the system has, uh, it has many weaknesses, right? But it's the fact that um, it's going to be extremely uh, difficult to trick this blockchain system, right? And that's advantage. The disadvantage, the disadvantage that it has is that we have seen over the last um, you know, 10 years that many times people hack these accounts, right? And the problem that you have when that happens is that you lose all the money. When you have a bank deposit uh, or if you own shares, that doesn't happen because it's all protected by the FDIC or um, by another entity to protect stocks. But if someone hacks your account and they take all the money away, uh, you're out of luck. Now, whether and how we should regulate it, that's where it gets um, a bit tricky because on one hand, I do want to, uh, or yeah, in my opinion, I would want to keep it fairly open so that people go into, you know, um, the banking system, right? Because if you think about it, there is nothing um, that um, uh, prohibiting us from using Bitcoin through the banking system, right? So if we were to make it easier for people, and if we try to see why are people worried or what are they worried about and make it easier for them to use it, um, that will be um, a good idea because the drawback is that if we make it way too complicated with regulations, then people won't want to use it, right? So it, you have to have a, a good balance between the two. Right, right. And it's still, st I'm still having trouble wrapping my own head around it, whether I would invest it or not, but I have other questions for you. So some of the financial institutions have, have now started to endorse this though. In fact, I think Fidelity is now saying that you could, put crypto into, you could buy, have Bitcoin in your uh, 401ks. Is, I, I think that's what it was. It's something on the investment side of that. Um, does that give it more legitimacy? Well, yeah, it, it could be argued that the fact that more entities, uh, you know, are um, letting people buy and sell um, cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin will make it a bit more legit. 
And I don't know how I feel about the 401k. I, I think that the best investment for anyone is to invest in the 401k, right? And to save in the 401k because um, you get this um, free money, if you will, right? That that your um, employer is paying. And also, um, you know, the, the case that I always use, which I have done with, with workers in, in the places that I work, is I tell them, listen, if you are 22 years old and you make $25,000 per year, and you save on a 401k 3%, when you retire, you'll have a million dollars. And for someone who makes $25,000 a year, the idea that they will have a million dollars is like, wow, yeah. But then we get into crypto, right? So the problem is that if they lose 50% of their money, that just doesn't sound right, right? So we don't know whether Bitcoin will will last. And there are some examples that I use to, to make that point. So that worries me, right, about letting um, people uh, invest their future on something that maybe it will remain 30 years from now or maybe it won't. Now, if it's not for 401ks, if it's for trading, right, um, let's remember that Square started doing this on PayPal about five years ago, right, where you could buy and sell for speculation only. So I think that, you know, if customers want it, they should be um, you know, allowed to use it. But the only thing that I would ask is that we educate them first, right? That we tell them, listen, these are the risks. And that is hard to do to some extent because how will you know whether people <laughs> have read the warnings that you're giving them? So in general, it's a good idea, but but we need to be careful about how we educate consumers. Yeah, no, and I, and I think that certainly from what I had read and seen in the early days of this, there was that, you know, this was the the lottery ticket, so to speak, and that was kind of the education people were getting. But there was a lot more to it than than just an easy way to make some quick money. But that's a great way to put it, right? So if you look at the way that Bitcoin works, it is by definition a lottery, right? Let's speak just for a second about how do you make Bitcoins? So, um, Originally, the concept was that, uh, well, and still is that anyone can make Bitcoin, right? You just get a computer and then you will be able to mint Bitcoin. But the part that is not properly disclosed is that um, probably a good analogy, which I read, will be that it's like, imagine that you were to have, you know, 1,000 sided dice, right? And you roll it. And so you want to roll it quick because if you get a number lower than 10, then you win, right? And and then you get to make Bitcoins. Every 10 minutes, there is a winner, right, who gets the Bitcoins. In the beginning, they were paid 50 Bitcoins, but it gets reduced by half every four years. So we go 50, 25, 12 and a half. Now it's 6.25. Now, the more people that get into doing this, the less likely that you're going to be lucky, right? But the point that is interesting about it is that you don't need a supercomputer per se. That won't help you at all because all you're doing is to roll the dice, right? Mathematically, the, the, the way it works, right? So um, in that sense, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's something that is purely out of luck. There is no way that by having a supercomputer that is smarter at it, you will improve your chances. You're really rolling a dice. So the way that um, Bitcoin is minted or created or made is a lottery, right? To roll a dice. And then when we look at what the price of Bitcoin has been over the last 10 years, again, we see that it goes up and down, up and down. 
like uh, no no other stock has done to, or no major stocks have done in terms of you know dropping by over 50% in 10 years it's a real roller coaster. You have to have a stomach for it if that's what you're going to invest in, in, in my humble little right. opinion. Now, now, one of the things that um, I do know about this too, and I don't think it's spoken about enough, which I'm not sure why, is that this is not really environmental and the whole technology is not environmentally friendly. And yet it doesn't. And at a time when, you know, so much of it, so much of the world seems to be focused on climate change and saving the planet, we're having all this attention on something that is not helping that situation at all, but yet it seems to kind of get pushed down. Can you talk about that? Yeah. And first, let, let's explain why this is happening. So let's say that today we have now a million computers trying to roll the dice, right? Now, um, if you think about it, when we use the banking system or Visa or MasterCard, we may have had, I don't know, seven computers, the one making the transaction, the one on the other side, some in the middle. So you have seven computers uh, trying to do something compared to a million computers trying to do the same thing. By definition, it's inefficient, right? Now, then what happens is that these one million computers will also approve the transaction, right? to say this transaction is, is correct and so on, using a mathematical concept. But again, you know, you're comparing using seven computers to a million computers. So by definition, it's inefficient. And the amount of energy that is used uh, doing this with Bitcoin is more than the consumption of a country like the Netherlands. So we are wasting a lot of energy. Now, what some people who are in favor of Bitcoin argues is, well, but that is okay if we use renewable energy. And um, I recommend folks to um, look at the videos made by um, the Wall Street Journal and the economists. And what the economists counter argues to that is, yeah, yeah, but we could use that electricity for a hospital or for a school, right? There are better uses of that electricity, that renewable electricity, than doing something that is highly inefficient. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. You really did explain that one well. I'm very impressed. Uh, you're, you're living up to your reputation here. Um, can, can we go back to El Salvador? And, and and I know you took a trip there and you were testing all of this stuff out. Do you think that more countries are going to follow suit and, and, and make this Bitcoin legal tender? Well, recently, the Central African Republic has done the same, right? What you get in countries where there is a lot of inflation and then currency depreciation and so on is that de facto you're not using your, your local currency, right? You tend to use the dollar or the euro um, if you are in, in, in Europe. So in that sense, it, it's easier for folks in, uh, you know, in this uh, Central African Republic or, or in El Salvador to say, well, you know, uh, why not? Now, El Salvador many years ago changed their legal tender to the US dollar. So from that point of view, it doesn't really make sense, right? But what was interesting about uh, my trip to El Salvador is that, of course, I first met, uh, you know, with all the, you know, uh, bank officers and, and some uh, folks, um, uh, you know, well, I cannot name them, but a well-connected, <laughs> uh, um, you know, folks um, close to um, the the regulatory board. And then I did what I always do, right, which is go and take public buses to, to talk to people and so on. 
And one of the things that I remember is that I was talking to someone who told me that he works um, uh, and he gets paid per day. So he get, he earns $10 per day. Now, what El Salvador did real well uh, is basically two things. One is they put ATM machines where you can convert your Bitcoin to real money, the dollar, although the fee is 5%. And the other thing that they did well is that they had people explaining to people how Bitcoin works in easy words, right? And it's right across from the cathedral in, in the middle of downtown and so on. So I went and I checked all that out. And then I started asking um, some folks that uh, you know were merchants and, and so on in the street where they accept Bitcoin and, and so on. And there's a lovely young girl on, on my YouTube channel that you would see her say, nope. And her friend asked her, listen, why didn't you sign up for it if the government gives you $30 for free? That is a salary of three days, right? It takes her three days to earn $30. And despite that, she said, no, no, I'm, I'm worried. And so I asked her, what are you worried about? And this is really interesting. She was worried about the fact that to open the account, she had to take a selfie. And she thought, what are they going to do with my photo? How do I know? Yeah, what is going to happen? And that was the reason why she wasn't willing to open an account and get cash the amount of money that it would take her three days to earn. So, um, you know, the, the, the rate is that about 50% or more of the people have not opened an account yet to get the $30. And, um, you know, when, when you talk to uh, the average citizen, right, they are they, they have concerns about um, using Bitcoin in El Salvador. Yeah, the privacy concerns, which is another issue that we could have a whole other episode about. Um, my gosh, you bring up so many interesting, interesting points in this whole um, in, in this whole in this whole thing. And I didn't even know you had a YouTube channel somehow or other. I hadn't found that one out. So is it, I mean, should I be asking my next client to pay me in Bitcoin? Is is that something I should be considering? Or should I well, just I stay away from this? If you will sell more, I would sell, I would say yes, right? If it's a way for you to attack, to attract customers and consumers, you could do it. I did this about 14 years ago, uh, something like exactly like this. So, um, I, I know how to manage it. And what you would want to do is to make it more cost-effective and to reduce the, your transaction fees. You want to open wallets, which are like bank accounts with all the different major uh, wallets out there or bank accounts. So for example, one of them is Coinbase, right? right. So you will uh, let people pay you directly into this wallet or bank account. And then what you want to do, in my opinion, is every day you convert it to real money, right? You convert it to dollars. So, of course, you will lose, uh, you know, if, if the price goes down or up, right? But I wouldn't hold the position overnight. Um, and that way, um, you know, I will reduce the transaction fees because I won't have to be paying for money to transfer it. Uh, from their bank account or wallet to mine, but I will be able to capture more uh, more customers and my exposure will be reduced, right? At most, what I will uh, make or lose is um, the appreciation or depreciation of a currency on that day. 
Wow. Yeah, I, I was also, um, I wanted to mention this before and it slipped away, but I'm really impressed with how you, you know, we're so data-driven right now with looking at hard data. And yet you also, which obviously you're a finance guy, so you're looking at data all the time, but you also incorporate that, what I call that good old anecdotal grassroots data by just asking people on the street, <laughs> what do you think? Which I, I don't think we pay enough attention to anymore. So I, I find that really fascinating. Yeah, I think it's quite useful. So I, I learned how to do this when I was um, creating credit policies um, for different regions of the world. And so one half of that is data-driven, right? You look at the likelihood that the person or the business will pay you. And uh, we use credit reports in the US and sometimes we look at profit and loss and balance sheets and so on. But the other thing that you have to look at is the willingness to pay. And to calculate that, you really have to go and meet the person. That's not a number, right? Because you may have the money, but you may be unwilling to pay. And the best way to, to do that is, is to go and meet people. I had to do this during the financial crisis of 2008 uh, because many of our clients were going to go belly up right the, the next Monday. So I had to take the risk of giving or not giving them credit and going and visiting them was quite effective. Well, you know, I, I say this to my students all the time, and, and sometimes people laugh at me because I talk to strangers all the time, um, not necessarily with intent like what you're doing, but I think there's so much to learn from that. So I'm, I'm a big fan of that. Um, I want to switch to something, oh, so much simpler, like NFTs. But this is something that, um, you know, I, I see it all the time, and I literally had to teach it a little bit to myself to talk about it in emerging trends in marketing because you see brands just literally jumping in feet first into creating NFTs as part of what their marketing campaigns are. But again, I think it's another one of those things that nobody really understands completely. Um, Stephen Colbert helped me in a in a uh, episode that he did on on his show at night, but um, I'm guessing that maybe you have a, another way of explaining it as well. Yeah, so one of the things that we do in, in my class is that um, we try to learn by doing, right? So, for example, then if we go back to, to Bitcoin, we created our own blockchain to learn how Bitcoin works and so on. And we did the same thing for NFTs, right? We created in class one NFT and it was extremely painful, right? The, the work <laughs> involved doing that. So um, basically the NFT could be anything like a photograph um, that can be digitalized and, and then um, you can keep it for yourself or you can sell it or transfer it to others. Now, the advantage that you have the way the NFT works is that imagine that we were to, um, you know, make an NFT of, of, of a podcast that, um, that we're making now, right? And by definition, NFTs are unique. There is only one of those, right? So, one way that we could do that is we could agree, you and I, that we're only going to print one copy and then we don't maybe need to use a lawyer, but we could go to a notary, right? Um, bring two witnesses and sign that, you know, there will be only one printout of, of this photo and, and so on. And that would be our contract. NFTs make it easier because you don't need a notary or a lawyer to make that contract. We use a concept called smart contracts, right? 
And in that smart contract, you will be able to see that there is only one copy of this printout um, because it will have a serial number. The serial number is basically the same thing that you have when you buy a car. And if you think about it, although there are 47 million Toyota Corollas, each one of them has a serial number, right? So you're able to track it back. And it will be the same thing with this photo that, that we could take of us doing the podcast, right? We will add a serial number and then we will be able to see that there is only one of those. With um, the smart contract concepts, anyone will be able to see that this was created at this time of the day. It was created by you and there's only one copy and who is the owner of that copy. So in that sense, um, it's, it's quite attractive, right? And just like with the concept of Bitcoin, I think it could be used for other purposes and be very attractive. What some um, companies are doing is they are creating um, NFTs for some of their products and it's quite popular, right? And, and the price is rising quite a bit. But we also see that some of these prices have increased a lot and then decreased a lot, right? Because you're basically betting on the value of this um, thing that you have bought. Now, the problem that we have, and that's why I'm glad that we did it, is that it's real, real hard to go through the system, right? So the first step would be that you won't need a lawyer, but you will need to have a programmer create this smart contract. And then you will be forced to open an account in one of these um, platforms that exist, which is similar like getting a, a Costco car, right? Now, <laughs> the, yeah, if, if you don't get the membership, you cannot uh, use it, right? Now, the membership card to do this will cost somewhere between $70 and $400. So uh, you get the membership, you get the programmer to do it for you, which will cost you somewhere between $100 and $300. And then you have the account, and now you're able to sell your, um, your creations or your photos and so on. For a small business, the data that I see is that it's really hard for them to make money, right? Because there are also many technical problems. And with Bitcoin or with NFTs, there is not a 1-800-Bitcoin number that you can call and say, listen, <laughs> no, this is not working. You don't have support at all. Zero, right? So when there is a problem, you have to Google what the problem may be and try to get help from others. So for small businesses, the data that I have seen is that it's hard to um, overcome the cost, right? The entry-level costs and so on. But if this was a way for your podcast to become more popular, because that's what the market wants, I would say, yeah, why don't you make one? You know, make an NFT every time that, that you get someone joining the podcast. Try to reduce the cost as much as you can, right? So that is uh, not that expensive and use it more to attract clients per se. Companies like Nike and Coca-Cola could potentially actually turn that into a profit, right? So they could build their brand, but actually because they will be able to have economies of scale and, and so on, reduce the cost and get a good enough premium to actually be able to make money out of it. Great explanation of that. I see a lot of luxury. That makes a lot of sense now because I see a lot of luxury brands getting into this. So again, they can defer the cost, whereas a smaller business is really going to have a lot more trouble with it. Wow. And I know I'm going to put the show notes in here, but you actually have a step-by-step -step tutorial that I found 
in case anyone listening wants to um, understand how to create how to create their own. So I think I could talk to you all day long, but I have a couple more questions and then I'd like a little lightning round. Um, so we're I keep saying we're coming out of this pandemic, but I'm not really 100 percent. 100% convinced that we're ever going to be away from COVID. But how how, how did that affect your business and, and you during the pandemic? How did you, how were you able to adapt? Well, um, you know, I, I work in private equity and what's um, really interesting in the businesses that we had um, at the beginning of the pandemic is that some of them had a lot more demand for the products and services that they were selling and others not at all, right? Now, one of the things that um, I will remember was how hard it was to have folks in these places where we had a lot of demand be willing to go to work, right? Because they were afraid and which I understand and, and so on. So my colleagues in HR at one point gave up and they said, listen, you do it because, you know, I, I tried to talk to them and, and they just wouldn't listen. So um, although I have no HR training whatsoever, <laughs> I did set up some, some calls with my colleagues and to talk about, right, what, what worries you and, and so on. And we were able to um, get some of them um, to be willing to, to uh, go back to work. I think we need to remember that these were really heroes, right? The people who, when all of us were working from home, they were actually out there creating products and, and services so that the rest of us could survive. So that lesson um, is something that, uh, you know, I, I will remember, right? How, you know, in, in situations like this, how do you motivate people to um, to go and, and, and act on, on something that would be useful for the rest of us. Um, at the personal level, um, it was uh, quite interesting because you know I had to change um, you know <laughs> what I was doing from 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 day to day. I did go to teach in person um, um, because I thought that it was important. At, at one point, uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was this rule that international students will be deported if um, they were unable to take classes in person, right? And that's when I offer NYU to teach as many classes as needed so that no one will have to go through that. Um, so there, the things that we lived through, right, were uh, incredible, right, the, the, the problems that we have. And I think that um, all of us have learned from it, right? There are lessons for our own personal life that um, we can, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, go back and say, this is what I learned from COVID. Well said, well said. Um, so I like to finish up on a fun note with just a little lightning round here. So are you okay with this? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, favorite social network? LinkedIn. Something people would never guess about you? Um, yeah, you know, I do speak about that, but, uh, and you mentioned it before, right? So actually I am a shy person. I, I am on flights sometimes for 14 hours. And unless a person sitting next to me, talks to me, I will not talk to, to him or her. Right. So, um, I do, you know, because of the work that I do, I have to become an extrovert. Right. But when I <laughs> get home, I, I feel like I need some time just to rest. Right. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I work as an extrovert, but, but in reality, I am more of an introvert. Ah, interesting. I love that. Um, I don't even know if you actually watch television, but the last series you binged, because you seem so busy to me, last series you binged on 
so I uh, it's hard to tell because I watch actually I do watch quite a bit of TV and um, I think I do like billions because it's a bit oh, more about the type of work that I do so <laughs> No, me too. Me too. And I actually think they did a brilliant job when um, Damien left the show. I, I I was really kind of impressed with how they were able to write it and still continue the storyline because I wasn't sure it was going to survive without him. Axe was such a big part of that show. A food you can't live without. Someone who's traveled to 190 countries. I can't imagine what you're going to say on this one, but a food you can't live without. Chocolate. Oh, me too. Me too. I am definitely, chocolate is definitely one of my Every day. What I tell folks is that I've never uh, smoked anything, right? And the reason why is that I know that if you put chocolates in front of me, I just cannot not eat them, right? <laughs> um, what you miss most about pre-COVID life? Before um, COVID, what I miss, I miss, you know, being reactivated and, and so on, but it's, I, I love to travel. So I, I really like to, to travel internationally. I'll be going to Atlanta and couple of weeks then to Canada then to Switzerland then to Dubai uh, and before COVID it was much easier to travel now with all these regulations that you have to be tested and, and so on it's real hard right because mm-hmm. you have the, the risk that if you get it then you won't be allowed to, to travel back and so on so the traveling part before COVID <laughs> was a lot easier and, and more fun. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm old enough to remember when it was really fun before 9-11. So um, hmm. I think it all went downhill after that. I love getting where I'm going. But it's it's the process. And lastly, what motivates you to get up in the morning? That is a great question. And, um, you know, now that I'm a bit older, I'm able to choose uh, the projects that, that I want to work on. And so typically what I have is very exciting projects ahead of me. Like, for example, today, I will say I couldn't wait to get out of mo- uh, out of bed to come and do the show, right? Because it's interesting and it's, it's a lot harder because it's audio only. Uh, so the, the idea of doing things that, that I enjoy, that I have fun, I, I try to put many of those uh, throughout the week. And, and that's why, you know, I wake up early and I go to bed late at night. <laughs> well, you are from Argentina, so I think they're late. It's a late night, late lights, probably in your DNA. And um, la- so that, thank you so much for this. Where can people find you? I'll put all these links. I know I found your Medium blog, and I know you're on LinkedIn. Um, where would you? Anything else that you want to suggest people can reach out to? I have a very open philosophy about LinkedIn because I think it's, it's, it's something good for people. So if, if folks send me an invite, I will accept it, right? I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm really open about it. And otherwise uh, they can't uh, just Google my name and, and then they will see different links for, for different platforms. Okay, thank you so much, George. You're quite welcome. Thanks so much for listening to Marketing Mindfulness and Martinis. If you liked what you heard, please share with your friends. Give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify so other people can find us and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. If you've got a question you'd like answered or a topic you'd like me to cover, please drop me a note. Info at joannetombrakis.com. And until next time, remember... Whatever got you to where you are isn't enough to keep you there.